This podcast is proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli. Hello and welcome to episode the 43rd of Tamper Tantrum. My name is Colin Harmon. Uh, again, not joined by Steve Layton this week. Um, perhaps we fell out again, who knows. Uh, instead, I'm um, joined by someone who... It's a weird one. I think this guy is someone I feel like I've known like incredibly well over the last five or six years without actually knowing it all. So uh, someone who I think he won't take any offence in me saying we didn't always agree on things, but uh, someone who I've always seen as, as a valuable foil in coffee and always a good source of discussion. And um, unfortunately, someone who is leaving this part of the world for um, greener fields. So I definitely wanted to pin him down and get him to do a podcast before we left. So um, without further ado, Mr. Tim Williams, welcome to the show, Tim. <laughs> Thanks very much. Was that a bit harsh? No, no, I think that's... Uh... It's a it's an apt uh, an apt introduction, um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's great after five years of waiting for the phone to ring to, to get the call to come on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so we first met two thousand and nine, I believe. Yeah, two thousand nine, maybe two thousand eight, but I think it was two thousand nine. Um, you'd been in London, uh, uh, kind of a few years at that stage. So let's let's skip the the early days in Australia and just like start from you landed in London and start working at coffee how did that happen um it, I mean uh, as a lot of people probably know that Australia has a very Australia and the UK have a, a visa arrangement uh, program where people in there up, up to about 30 years old I think it is can, can come to the UK for two years of work and and so it's a pretty standard um, rite of passage, I guess, that people go through. Um, and, and for me, there was a slightly uh, more historic edge to it. Like my half, you know, half of my family is is from uh, Newcastle in the north, uh, and so I lived over here for a little while as a kid. Um, and England has always been a big part of sort of the cultural identity of my family uh, mm-hmm. and so there was always a bit of a push for me to come over at some point and spend a bit of time here. Um, it's uh, a bit of a rite of passage for people in Australia as well, like that kind of age, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that you go home after two years though and um, I managed to hang off at 10. Uh, but <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so a few of my friends had, had, had come over to the UK and were doing um, interesting well, I've seen interesting different things in coffee uh, based in London and from Melbourne. It sounded like they were having a great time. Um, I was spending weekends in Berlin, going to pretty crazy clubs and this kind of thing. And uh, it sounded better than what I was up to in Melbourne. So, um, so I, I bought a one-way ticket and uh, and packed up and and shipped over and. Um, yeah, that, I guess that was towards the end of 2006, so yeah, maybe nine, what, nine was, it, was it coffee straight away, like, is it, or was it a lot of things you encountered before you landed into coffee? It, I mean, I was working with coffee in, in Melbourne before I... Everyone does. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the salaries, as, as I'm told, are magnificent, but I, I don't ever remember <laughs> that being the case. Um, but actually, I, I wanted to come over and cook, and... Um, Coffee was just like what I was going to do 
while I waited for my British passport to come through. Uh, and my, my plan, if, if I can, you know, give the, 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 the scraps of an idea such a elaborate term, um, was that I would uh, probably move to France and, and cook. Um, and, you know, I really... So when you say cook, were you like a trained chef at this stage? Or was it just not at all. Uh, you had a food blog or something? I didn't even have that. Uh, I just had always loved cooking and always loved being involved in food. And, um, and I'd done some cooking in Melbourne, some professional cooking in Melbourne. But, but you know, I was getting paid pretty okay as a barista and, um, you know, I was pretty comfortable in that sort of gig and I thought in order to shake it up enough um, to accept four or five euros an hour pay, I, I would need to really um, get rid of all that stuff in order to, to commit to it. So that, that was the idea. Um, yeah. So you, you got the coffee job in London then and was Clemson's the first place you worked? Is that the... No, Flat White. And so flat White. Okay, so wow. I, I'm sure... I, I, this is what, 2000... Late 2006, so I'd say like maybe like September 2006. Um, and like, I still remember going, like seeing a video about Flat White and then going to London, pretty much specifically to visit the place and like having a coffee and be like, fuck, I'm going to do this. Like, because it was pretty <laughs> like groundbreaking at the time, wasn't it? It was amazing. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a real turning point, um, I think, for, for what we know of London coffee now. If you have to trace everything back, I mean, that was Cafe Zero, I think. Mm. Um, there'd certainly been people doing interesting things in coffee in London prior to that. And, you know, you can't go past Monmouth, who, who were roasting. Monmouth had three years of roasting under their belt before I was born. And, um, you know, they're still in operation and still doing incredible things. But, but, um, you really it was have more of a cultural shift, though, with flat white. That was that absolutely kind of like definitely. That was a real um, kind of awakening because you know Monmouth are very sort of humble and um, they're pretty quiet about what they do. Like they do incredible things, and yet you know they're not the company taking out Twitter ads or um, billboards to talk about it. Um, which you know I think to some extent. Um, meant that what happened with flat white, or what started with flat white, was was a much more um, it was a much louder sort of a transition point. And it was you know it was something I think as well that that expats were Australian and New Zealand expats were really looking for and really really hoping and um, hoping would be in the city. And um, there was this one focal point for them around coffee which I mean it just worked it was uh, I think last week I was having lunch with a friend who, who also worked at uh, Flat White at the same time and you know we're talking about the fact that then it was it was crazy busy like still like nothing I've ever seen uh, since um, and a tiny 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 space like yeah uh, maybe maybe 300 square feet, I would say. If you're lucky. Yeah. Um, and yet it was, uh, we'd often have four people uh, just working on the machine, or the, the, the machines themselves. And 
one person taking orders and one person doing dishes and one person doing food and four baristas just one one not even pulling shots one one just getting the ground coffee into the water filter <laughs> and then they would ha- they would hand that off to be tapped and uh, and loaded so. Wow. And like, did you have like, without going too far in depth into just what flat white was, but did you have a sense of the like the cultural shift that, and that that flat white was creating? Like, was that like without? Okay, yeah, I'm gonna sound like an arse when I say this, but like in in a, in a way, you're kind of creating like British coffee history in that place. Do you know what I mean? I don't think anyone realized that anyone who worked there realized where things would go, um, and maybe that was because we didn't really care, um, but, um, but it, it would be, you know, it was impossible to not notice that this was having an impact because we had Australian news crews coming in and filming stories and interviewing the baristas. And you know, one day um, Jim Page came in to, you know, to meet the baristas uh, and... You know, when, I think when you're standing there with a member of Led Zeppelin, like, you realise that this is not a... You know, that didn't happen in Melbourne. Like, yeah, you maybe got paid a little more in Melbourne, but, um, but it was so every day. And here it was, it was, um, it was completely unique. And Definitely one of the, uh, the upsides of working in coffee. Yeah. Wow. Um, so where did that spit you out? So I, I was only there for about six months. Um, uh, I've <laughs> you know, I was pretty keen to, uh, I, I wanted to see things done a different way than, than the way a lot of things were happening there. And, you know, to, to flat white's credit, like they didn't need to change anything at the time. Like they were, um, they were really busy and doing really well. Um, I, I kind of wanted to see things more streamlined and more organised, and um, so I had the opportunity to go and start managing a place out in uh, East London, in uh, Broadway Market, and so I took that opportunity. Uh, yeah, I think after about six months at Flat White, and, uh, and I headed over there. So that was, uh, I guess, early to mid two thousand seven. Uh, at a place called Clemson and Sons, which, uh, I mean, that shop is still there, but they, they have a much bigger roasting operation now. And, um, I've spelt it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think they're roasting at Loring uh, these days. Um, and they seem to be in a lot of places, so it looks like things are going pretty well for them. Um, yeah, and, you know, there I kind of had, had an opportunity to really kind of um, shake things the way I thought they should have been organised, um, which was great. And, you know, a few of the guys from Flat White came over and, and joined me over there uh, to make that happen, which um, was really, I mean, it was really good fun. It was, um, it was at the time when, I think some of the drive from Flat White was starting to spur on other places and, and we were starting to get some of that momentum in London that, that you know, kind of continues to today. And Square Mile was just 
getting started, I guess, at that point. Yeah. Uh, Gwillem had his cart uh, down in Columbia Road. Yeah, um, that in itself was an institution. I remember working that and seeing a 200 meter queue and with nobody caring that it was 200 meters long. No, absolutely. And, and there's a pretty good chance I was in the queue somewhere. And, um, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it, that was, that was quite a phenomenon actually. Um, and Fernandez and Wells, and I suppose, around the same time, is that kind of... Yeah, I think they were, yeah, probably about the same time. Um, I think they were a little while after Flat White. Um, and I think they took some of the cues from what Flat White was doing, but um, yeah. George uh, from Fernandez has a really uh, very distinct idea of, of how he wants things done and um, what for him makes a really great environment. And, uh, and so they certainly were... Um, probably a, a slightly more food driven um, not version of flat white but you know um, mm. uh, slightly more food driven operation and, and um, again another company that, that is still around today doing yeah. quite a lot of locations there as well yeah so then remind me then after Timpsons where were you then did you go to Vintelli straight after that or was there no I so I, I was working at Clemson's I was managing Clemson's for I can't even really remember how long, probably about a year and a half or so. Uh, but I was still really interested in the cooking thing, even though that had, that had fallen by the wayside. So, um, and fallen by the wayside is like, like a core kind of career prospect. So in order just for, you know, um, my own interest and my own development, I was cooking one, maybe two nights a week at um, a gastro pub across the road. Uh, and that was, you know, I was really enjoying that uh, and learning a lot, and um, especially learning a lot about the difference between, you know, gastro pub style cooking and where I've been cooking in Melbourne, were, were, were some pretty, uh, pretty different kind of <laughs> uh, places. So it was really a nice insight into some different stuff, and um, I suppose that was a kind of that's a time as well when like. The gastropub is almost like a generic term now, whereas in two thousand eight, I suppose, was like all over Britain. Those ga- like the gastropub was was the new haunt of like the celebrity chef. Like it was turning into something else aside from just peas and mash, wasn't it? Yeah, and and it was like the food there was incredible. Um, it, like it was it was a very hard um, thing for me to get my head around because this was like also like pre-smoking ban so like it was a rowdy east london pub which you know by eight o'clock on a friday night was you know you could barely see the ceiling because of the plumes of cigarette smoke and yet the food coming out of the kitchen was incredible and and you know it would be considered pretty standard these days but you know like we're doing like whole, uh, we're doing like razor, lots of razor clams and uh, whole like baby barramundi and um, a lot of Thai influence stuff. The, the head chef at the time was a, a Kiwi guy who, um, you know, had a really broad understanding of, of great food. So it was a pretty eclectic menu and it was certainly really interesting to cook and it was really interesting for the customers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think you're right, like gastro pub these days is like, you know, you pick the six best dishes out of the Tom Carriage book and, um, 
and yeah. you know rotate quarterly. And it's kind of it's gotten to the point where if you were to open a gastropub, it would be the last thing you'd call it. Yes, you'd stay away from that term certainly, but you would be able to download. Uh, you'd be able to order the decor complete from the catalogue. Um, so, <laughs> so it would be simple in that in that sort of regard. Um, but yes, yeah, so, back into coffee then. Well, actually, I mean, I even took a, a, a further time out um, because I so I was cooking like a couple of days a week, and, and I was enjoying that a lot. And the coffee management thing was. Uh, not really kind of motivating me so much. Um, and I actually had some friends who were going to the launch of a new restaurant uh, and invited me along. And I, just, I, I literally like, didn't have anything to do that night, so I thought I'd go along and um, I didn't really know anyone there, so I was just hanging out on my own and then they were passing around some tastings of food. And this... Uh, I got this little taster plate and it had a, a chimbula sea bass on it. I think with like a, I think it was with like roast sweet potato or something, but um, like it was amazing. Like I'd never tasted anything that um, just purely enjoyable on a plate before, uh, which funnily enough was the same thing that happened with a cup of coffee that, that got me into coffee in the first place. But So uh, it was like God bath. <laughs> it was literally God bath. Um, and it was great and I thought, you know what, fuck this coffee thing, like, you know, I'm going to take some time out, like, I'm going to cook. So uh, I asked them if they needed any help um, in the kitchen and they said they didn't really, but, you know, I could come in, uh, like, grab some vegetables or something like that and um, that, that was like that for, like, maybe three days and then I was doing a little bit more and then I was doing a bit more and within, like, uh, two weeks I was... Uh, working in the main section uh, alongside either the head chef or the sous chef uh, pretty much every day and every night. Um, and it's quite a level to get to without actually having that much skill. Because like, it's with little experience that I have with kitchens, it's because I was always on, on the floor, but it was like there's a dexterity that comes with experience. It's hard to teach someone in that sort of time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I was any good. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just saying I wouldn't. Uh, like, like most of my career, like I was in the right place at the right time. And, you know, they need somebody to cook and I wanted to cook and uh, that's how it worked out. Um, but the place, uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was, um, it was a really great place to work. Um, I was a very, very, very long way out of my depth. Um, I was working with chefs who were 18, 19 years old and had five years experience and, um, you know, were incredibly good. Uh, but isn't, isn't like out of your depth, like an amazing place to be, like at times, like it really is just, that's, it's a painful place to be, but like it's, it's, it's where you do the most learning really, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I, um, I've spent most of my career there, um, and enjoyed it immensely, uh. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so 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 at that place, I was I was cooking kind of sixteen hours, eighteen hours a day, um, and working for some really great, uh, uh, very compassionate and understanding people um, in a kitchen that ran on kind of like hugs and good vibes. And you know, I'm sure the only person that ever raised their voice in that kitchen was me, and I got like put in my place. Um, it's a weird one that weird like. Where do you stand on that? 
like because I have I have lots of friends who are chefs and restaurateurs and they're like it's weird I'd say 70% of them are adamant that it needs to be fuck you you effing effing whatever like, <laughs> fuck you you effing it has to be this like highly intolerant abusive work environment for it to work and then I've got 30% of you friends that say well it doesn't have to be like that it doesn't have to be like that no, nowhere you work has to be like that um, yeah. I, I think you know um, why is it like that? I think it's tradition and it's how people um, put their own um, value on or, or the, their own kind of sense of importance you know but if you're not stressed to buggery and on the edge the whole time then you're not pushing hard enough but it just doesn't produce good results I mean like well, I think the chefs as well like there's a whole the, the the hierarchy in a kitchen is really a throwback to military days absolutely like like a lot of the standards uh, and simple like like portioning and prepping and that, like the systematic systems that kitchens runs off come from the military and I think you probably have that in the military and it's just spilled its way over and it's just yeah. never let go I mean one of the first head chefs I worked for was an ex-marine and he'd gone from the marines to being a head chef and uh, and but the, and, you know that whole system ran on on kind of like fear and um, aggression and uh, and um, you know I look back on it now and at the time it was exciting and um, you know it, it did make you work very hard and uh, you produced a lot of results I don't necessarily know that they were the best results. Uh, but I look back on it now and I just think, like, it's it's ridiculous and um, I would never, you know, put myself through that again. Uh, mm-hmm. And I certainly feel that, like, a lot of um, the way that I have managed people over years has been influenced by that sort of approach, not just from that one person, but, you know, um, but from a number of the places that I, that I worked and I look back at that time now and think as well that you know I could have done so much better as a manager by taking a step back and calming down and, and, and having some perspective on issues um, uh, and you know I'm very very proud of a lot of what I've uh, done with different workplaces and what I've achieved but but I do always think that you know with more uh, with a more kind of temperate approach, I, I, you know, I could have achieved even more. Um, but I think that's you know, part of part of developing and learning as you go. Yeah, yeah. like a, it's it's a difficult thing because like it's um. I think a lot of the time, like the people that are that are losing the rag are the people that have the least confidence. As crazy that as that sounds, that's what I see. So like the people that don't have. A lot of confidence in what they're doing. The easiest way for them to get their point across is to lose the rag. Absolutely. But it actually takes somebody with like a shitload of confidence and belief in themselves to very calmly sit somebody down and say, "You were doing a terrible job. I need you to improve here. Mm. I need you to do this. This would make things a lot better, and then we can get over this." Yeah. And like having that, that kind of um, that control of yourself is actually a lot more intimidating in a lot of ways as well. For sure. And I think you know, I think to some extent that was me in a kitchen, um, where you know I. I was the one well and truly out of my depth. 
uh, and everyone else around me had enough experience to realize that enough experience and enough skill to to be confident that it was going to be okay that they would be able to um, uh, to manage whatever came along and and you know I didn't feel like I had that uh, and you know one of the ways that I guess I dealt with that was the way that I learned from other chefs and, and that was to be um, you know pretty assertive and and um, to be to kind of exist in a state of being perpetually worked up um, but um, I, I, yeah I'm incredibly lucky that those people that I worked with uh, at that time you know I'm still good friends with and, uh, and still in contact with um, because I learned so much from them hmm. uh, not just about food but about working and, and, and that kind of thing and that was a really I mean it was again a really incredibly busy environment um, uh, and yeah it was a, it was it was a good time it was actually probably one of the most it was probably probably like personally the most formative single year of work I ever did uh, and probably informed my coffee career more than <laughs> any of the coffee places I worked <laughs> <clears throat> so then moving along how do we get back into coffee then how does that happen through my housemate at the time one one compatriot of yours mr stephen morrissey mr morrissey yeah okay, so like at this stage and like it's it's like you stephen james hoffman klaus thompson tim verney are all floating around london if and so, yeah and you guys you guys invented the flat white in a, in a bed set somewhere <laughs> that's pretty much it that's it was in, in a cascara field sort of a night of abandon if Tim Varney was in London I never met him I, oh really okay uh, yeah I'm making stuff up uh, he was in London at that, I think at that time or maybe maybe a little uh, before then but we, we never met in London um, we yeah we met in uh, Norway. Um, actually, he was he was gone by then because I met him in Norway in like two thousand seven. So he was already implanted into the Wendell Empire at that stage. Um, and do we? So Stephen obviously got you involved at Square Mile then, was it? Because he was involved at that time. Um, so Stephen and I were living together, and I was helping him out with his competition stuff. Oh yeah. So that was that was two thousand eight. So while I was cooking, or two thousand seven, sorry. Um, so while I was cooking, uh, I'd often get you know two hours off, you know, between lunch service and dinner service, and uh, and I'd spend two hours training with Stephen uh, for the Irish Bristol Championship. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I kind of kept a hand in coffee that way, and. I think after, I think it was after Stephen won. Um, he was uh, filming, doing some work for Nova Simonelli in Italy, uh, and some work with some guys in Greece as well. And uh, he needed a bit of help with that, so uh, he managed to get me to come along. So um, that was good. We were sitting actually having uh, having dinner with uh, Cosimo. Who's now based in Australia, but uh, was uh, working in Italy at the time. We're having dinner in uh, in a place in Italy, and, 
hanging out and chatting and the phone rang and it was uh, Kyle Glanville who of now of Glanville and Babinski fame but, but then at Intelligentsia and he was getting ready to open uh, the Venice store in Los Angeles and he needed a manager and I think Stephen had put my name forward and, uh, <laughs> and I can't do as Tim will do as <laughs> yeah something like that um, so the next thing I knew I was on a, a conference call with uh, Doug Zell and uh, with Kyle and um, convinced. You didn't really think that that decision. I mean, like <laughs> you didn't think it through, but like there, I can't imagine there was much dilly dallying on that decision. Like even I, I'd say the dog in the street knew what they were planning was going to be something amazing. Like that must have been such a, a huge, like opportunity. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that I understood it as much as everyone else did, <laughs> to be honest. Like, <laughs> like I was obviously aware of Intelligentsia, but um, uh, mainly through what Stephen had told me and um, moving to Los Angeles had never been on the agenda of things to do in my life. So um, it was kind of just a bit of a thing that happened uh, it was an opportunity and it sounded good and um, uh, I went over to the States and met Doug at a different event in Portland and um, spent a bit more time with Kyle and it seemed like it would be a cool fit uh, so was it, I went. was it fair to say that like that the shift that the flat white caused in the UK that Venice the same thing in the US I like it in a completely different context and a different scale but in a very similar way like that's what it looked like from the outset that there was there was coffee bars and then there was this Venice store I I mean obviously Venice was pretty different to anywhere that had come before um, I've not traveled a lot in the US at that point so it was hard for me to have kind of a lot of context um, I'd spent a lot of time in New York and, and New York coffee bars are, are really different to the Venice place mm -hmm. um, but I think I mean the project was so big uh, and again it felt like something that had so much writing on it that, that it was a pretty blinkered well, I had a pretty blinkered um, understanding of, of how it fitted into even how it fitted into LA as opposed to the rest of the US um, hmm. like I knew it was big but that's because I knew how much money was being spent and how many people we were hiring and who those people were and, um, I mean this I mean this like uh, from a like I honestly mean this from a, from a point of huge respect but was there that sense of I'm out of my depth of course and I, but that's when I say I'm not just saying that to, to appease you when I say like I have I have huge amount of time for people to get themselves out of their debt because that's where the learning is done you know and were you conscious of that at the time or was it just looking back oh no it? completely that one <laughs> that one I knew all too well that I was out of my debt uh, you know I had a you know one day I kind of I got the nod I'd been waiting for a while like 
to, like I knew what was happening, but I was sort of treading water, um, waiting for the call to actually come over. Uh, so I was still living in London. And I'd left the kitchen by this point and I was pretty much just hanging out at Square Mile and helping out. And, well, Larry's blog post about Stephen Morrissey. Blogging, you know, I spent my time blogging. Which, you know, seems like a lifetime. <laughs> that, was that, was, yeah. that was it. That was the one. Um, but, uh, yeah, then one day I got, got the nod and a plane ticket arrived and I was told where the car was parked in the airport for me to pick up and and where the office was to report to the next morning or where the, where the apartment was to stay, where the office was the next morning. And, you know, it was like you know, about 20 hours from getting on a plane to sitting at my desk in Los Angeles. And, and it was, uh, it was very much like that, like, that's where you're sitting, like, uh, let's get on with it. And, you know, like, the, like the U S work environment is completely different to, to anywhere I'd worked in the past. And, you know, there's a very, there's a really, um, kind of hierarchical, way that things happen in the US. Like even you go to a restaurant and, and the person that writes down your order is not the person that brings you your food generally. And the person who takes your dirty plates away more often than not can't bring you a dessert menu. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like quite a siloed sort of approach to, to roles and then you know, I'd come from environments where it was more or less whatever you need to do to, to get a job done, you, you muck in and you get it done. But, you know, I was joining a company that was maybe 20 times larger than any company I'd ever worked in before. And the idea that there was a department for finance was completely new. Um, and the fact that that department was, was in a different time zone um, as well was uh, <laughs> all, all the stuff that I had to learn and adjust to and, and it definitely um, took me some time but you know like Intelli was a was a pretty rapidly growing uh, company and you know they didn't have a laminated A4 um, guide to how to induct an Australian by way of London you know it was not really um, like that, that wasn't really considered. It was, it was like get started. And I think to some extent I felt like what I was being hired for was, was an ability to be able to adapt and to move quickly and, uh, to get on with things. So, so that was kind of what we did and it was great. I mean, it was, it was incredibly hard work. It's, it's, um, it was yeah incredibly challenging, but um, that was uh, from everyone that I've, I've spoken to since then. Like that, that was the time that you wanted to work for Intelli. Yeah, I remember like I don't know if you like a tweet or a blog post or something, but I remember when, like when the news broke that you're going to do it, and like the, uh, my first reaction was like fucker like he got the ticket you know what I mean like it's like he got the gig you know it was until you were like habitually winning first second third fourth fifth sixth place in every burst of competition around they were like they had Kyle they had Mike Phillips they had Stephen Morrissey it was it was the who's who of coffee in the states and then 
this flagship store was opening and, and you were driving it there and yeah like that's that's an incredible time to look back on yeah it was like it was great um, in so many ways and I met and got to know this whole uh, range of really incredible people um, but you know I think I um, you know I certainly felt a huge amount of pressure to do really well and I think Kyle Kyle uh, explained that his sort of trajectory in, in Coffee with Intelli was was a, a, a similar thing to what I was about to go through was the idea of, you know, you'll be giving a little bit too much responsibility and a little bit too much um, uh, opportunity and you either rise to it or you don't. And, and you know, he had... Uh, opened the Silver Lake store and I think been obviously instrumental in getting the LA Roasting Works uh, operational as well and, and achieved really great things. So there was a huge amount of pressure, um, not necessarily coming directly from anyone, but, but almost uh, coming from myself to, to live up to that uh, standard. And I think anyone who's uh, tried to live up to the Kyle's standards uh, has found themselves pretty tired after a while. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's a pretty remarkable guy and so a lot of really, really uh, insanely um, memorable things. Um, so it was definitely a time that, that was, was a bit tiring and um, uh, it was also, you know, we were, we were, uh, from a technical perspective, I was consulting for the company um, yeah. while we were going through the process of securing visas and uh, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So I was also living out of a suitcase and moving from sublet to sublet. Uh, that in itself is a stress. So that was a year of doing that uh, and leaving the country uh, periodically and kind of either working from London or Germany or wherever I would go to and working from there for a few days. And, heading back, um, which was really hard. Uh, and sort of hard as well because you, know, you spend a year um, not really able to make any kind of solid roots and not commit to anything um, too seriously, which, um, you know, was really tough. It was like a, it was a, a hard time. And then I could focus on work a lot more than I would have been able to today or, or you know, for the years to follow, but um, but that's kind of because it dictated everything. Though it's like you had no opportunity to to create another distraction. No, which which I think for Intelli was kind of okay at the time because it was a real all encompassing sort of organisation to work for. Like you, like if you worked for Intelli, you, you hung out with Intelli people and you went to Intelli parties. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I'd like I did. Uh, in no way am I comparing what we do to what Intelli does or did even back then but I remember one of our a guy who used to work for us said to me one day we were having a pint after long after he'd work, finished working for us and he said that there was an emotional slice that was taken out of you when you worked at 3FE and I said do you mean that in a good way or a bad way and he's like I don't know <laughs> you know what I mean and it's like there, I, I know places like that and I think Intelli strikes me as that's yeah. the place where it kind of it's almost a lifestyle absolutely Definitely. But, I mean, I'm aware that there are people who go to work every day 
in order to exchange a certain amount of their time for a certain amount of money. Um, but that's never appealed to me. And hmm. um, if there's no emotional slice involved, then I'm not interested. <laughs> and and there's um, for a while I for a while I thought there was like a salary level that would that would that I'd be able to fake the interest for, um, but it turns out there's not. And uh, <laughs> and if I you know if I'm not yeah. If I don't, if I don't want to get up and go there every day, then and my wife will attest to this, uh, knowing that like it's it's just not a good fit for anyone. Yeah, well, that's it's a good. Most people like get to retirement age before they realise that. But I plan to retire in like three yeah. years, so you know I need I got a lot of work to do. Touche. So then. You were brought back to the UK then, was that, like, without getting too nosy about it, was it the, was it the stress of the work or was it the visa issues? Or was yeah, it, it just issues? wasn't, uh, it wasn't gelling. Um, I wasn't enjoying going, you know, going back and forth and, and kind of living so, um, you know, like I didn't, like, it was a situation where it's like, you can't buy this packet of salad leaves or is that too, you know, is there a smaller one? Is there one that has five leaves in it? Um, because I don't want to like throw this out when I have to jet off again. Um, yeah. And so uh, I arranged to spend some time um, with, uh, with a girl who at the time was my ex-girlfriend in uh, Berlin. We you know, said we'll go to Berlin, catch up and hang out. And, I was like, I really enjoyed spending time with this person and uh, I've just got this feeling that things in LA are not going to work out. Um, and so I called Doug and said, you know, like, I think, you know, I think I'm not going to come back. Um, and he said, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. And, and uh, so I didn't go back and I married the girl and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and all these other things worked out to be great. So, um, yeah, it just didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like going back to LA was the right thing to do. So I didn't do it. And, um, you know, I think that was the best thing for, uh, was the best thing for me, certainly. Uh, and hmm. in the end as well, I think that was the, fairest thing for the staff of Venice as well because they had this manager who you know was in and out and like when I was there I was there a lot um, but it was certainly starting to be more and more challenging uh, to, to, to do all these things that a manager should be doing and, um, I'd gone from this understanding of management as being the person who makes staff do things to this uh, understanding of being a manager of this person who enables and allows people to achieve things. And, you know, I wasn't able to fulfill that uh, for the guys there. Uh, and I wasn't doing a very good job of that, I don't think. So um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And, you know, I think really fortunately for... Um, 
for all the Venice staff, I think it was somebody in between, but, but eventually Melissa uh, Owens took over. Melissa Buckerman uh, yeah. Owens at the time. But, um, I think she took over and, uh, you know, she was like a real kind of solid force for those guys and, and did a lot of what yeah. I was not able to but do. Like, I think anyone that spent any time opening coffee bars realizes that the first 18 months are just hell. Like, it's, you're filtering your audiences, you're just, you're trying to get things down, and so I'm sure that, um, there's a whole, like, workload that you broke the back of, and you put that in place, and I'm sure... I think so, I think so, but I think, I think, um, I think what's really important for a manager and for, um, or for, for the business owner or whoever's seen to be the person in charge is that, like, like... If you're getting paid to come in and make drinks and be nice to customers, then like, then the fact that the you know whatever inventory system isn't working or you know whatever major problem you're dealing with as a manager, it's like that's not that person's problem. Like they shouldn't even be aware. Like they shouldn't even read on your face that that's an issue. Um, and it's really really hard to separate those things and um, to kind of like pigeonhole. Uh, problems that don't affect certain people away, but like I'm sure it's like a thing that comes with uh, well, for a lot of people it probably comes a lot earlier, but for me it came with uh, parenting and realising, you know, that like 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 if I'm stressed about something like like my two year old daughter doesn't need to know about that like, you know yeah. if, she, if, if I if I even make her aware of that Stress somehow, then, then I've failed in my duty of, of providing her with what she needs, uh, and you know, I certainly don't want to label all staff as being the equivalent of two-year-olds, but um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you know, like it is, it is a it is a contract. You know, it's, it's true. It, it's that's your it's your job. Like is is. It, like you have to um you have to create those buffers between people to help them do the job of course of course absolutely and uh, it was something i probably was not aware as aware of at the time as i should have been and, um uh yeah it's it's all part of what's made me the rich and complex person i am today <laughs> <laughs> so you come back to the uk mm. so so I came back to the UK and uh, and I took uh, it's the only time I've ever done it in my life. And but I took some time off and uh, I I didn't work for like I think it was about six weeks and and I was just hanging around the house, which was actually my at the time my girlfriend's house, and um, I'm sure that was insufferable for her and her housemate and. Uh, yeah, I just hung around the house, and I didn't. I didn't even. I mean, I didn't even really cook much. I think I like watched daytime TV and read, and uh, took it really easy. And, and that got really, really boring, uh, really fast. And so I would uh, I would go and work at Quillam's shop occasionally, or on the car, and uh, it was. Yeah, uh, so I'd like pull some drinks in there and, um, or present. Yeah, it was, it was called, I think it was called Proof Rock at Present, which, you know, was yeah. much more 
So, like I said, it's yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, that was that was good fun. That was interesting, and um, it just got me out of the house. And I was sort of hanging around Square Mile a bit as well because there was uh, not much else for for me to do. And I would like pack coffee and sweep floors and do whatever. And, and then after a while, I think it was um, easier for them. Um, to pay me uh, than it was for them to ask me to leave <laughs> you know absolutely like yeah definitely less awkward but if somebody said who's that guy they could say an employee as opposed to it's a long story um, so uh, <laughs> so yeah so then after a little while I had a job and I was working for Square Mile and there was no real kind of clear outline of what that job involved exactly to begin with but it was Penny University was a big yeah. Came, I mean that, that certainly came a little while into my time uh, at Square Mile, um, but that was probably the most. Uh, it's certainly the, the aspect of my role at Square Mile that everyone, um, everyone, you and maybe three other people uh, remember, remember the most. Um, but yeah, Penny University was was a great. You know, very interesting learning experience for everyone. I think. Um, so I think I I talk to people every now and again. I'm like, it's kind of like Penny U, and they're like, what's <laughs> Penny U? And I'm like, you fucking yeah. idiot. So Penny University was a counter with four yep. stools, and um, uh, like three coffees, each with a different yep. brewing method, and chocolates. Yeah. Them. And a queue at the door. A queue, like, well, not out the door, yep. at the door. That you had to stand there and wait until someone got off a stool. That's right. Yeah. So, um, the the basic uh, situation was that a a skincare brand in Redchurch Street, which was at the time like kind of like an okay area, but not crazy. And these days, every annual rent is six figures and above, and um, they had a space that they weren't doing anything with, and one of my friends was uh, uh, working there, and they wanted to do something with coffee and something that really added to the neighbourhood. They had this kind of really clear set idea on what a good retail mix for the street that they sell their products in um, looks like. And one of those places is the ability to get a really good cup of coffee somewhere close by, uh, very close by. And, and they didn't have that. So they wanted to do something coffee related. They were very aware of Square Mile. Um, Square Mile was very aware of the skincare brand. And uh, so they gave us the space for free to do something interesting with. And um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I think often given credit, but I think James and Annette came up with the idea for, um, for Penn University. Uh, and as has been, I think, one of the underlying currents in my career is that I, I was the person that uh, was brought in to make it happen. And um, the idea was that it would be no espresso uh, and no takeaway and no milk and no sugar. So... Yeah, but like, there's, there's people listening to this right now kind of going, yeah, so... I and like, I don't think it can be like overstated how f- 
fucking crazy that was for the time. Like that they would, that this could happen was just, it was just completely revolutionary. Like without blowing smoke off your arse, you're after clocking up flat white London in 2006, uh, Intelligentsia Venice in 2009 and now moving on to Penny University and like and there are three places that have had these like seismic impacts on, on, on what coffee was doing like like we've done a lot of stuff that like like drinking tasting menus but that was always just a spin off from what Penny University did they had the balls to turn coffee into a taste experience yeah I, th- I mean I think that's true um... it kind of like I don't you see at this stage it's kind of 50-50 Tim I don't know if it's like Tim is like the one driving all these incredible things or whether like this is like coffee's answer to Forrest Gump and you just keep turning up at these seismic moments. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the second one, definitely. Uh, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I often find myself with uh, um, like, like little, little like uh, gap in my life, like this little like amount of time that isn't spoken for and, and you know, I don't really have any hobbies or anything that I do apart from look for interesting other things to do. So when opportunities like that come along, I just generally end up being in a good position to, to take them up. Uh, and I have very supportive and encouraging people in my life that let me uh, take those opportunities on. So, so Penny University was, was like that too. Um, and, you know, it was a big, it was a, it was a huge change, um, but you know, it was pretty it was pretty minimal risk, right? It was like the space was given for free. Um, the company didn't have a retail presence anyway. Uh, I was going to be staffing it entirely myself, plus maybe one other person. We ended up having this great guy uh, who doesn't work in coffee anymore, which is a horrible, horrible loss. Um, uh, in fact, the only two staff members we ever had. Uh, at Penny University, um, uh, uh, don't work in coffee at all. Uh, one, one, no, one, one, uh, one never did, and uh, and only worked there a few hours a week because he was really interested in doing it. Um, but every single coffee person that wanted to work there just wasn't going to be the right fit because you know it wasn't a coffee place, and, and this line gets trotted out everywhere these days. Um, and I think it's kind of disingenuous because I don't see it necessarily translating uh, into reality. But but it, it wasn't about the place wasn't about coffee. The place was about service and um, and um, changing the way people thought about things. Yeah, and the, that's fair. Do you remember I sent my dad in? Ah, oh, vaguely. So I sent him in and I, like, he yeah. like, paid little to no interest in what I'd been doing until that stage. And all of a sudden was like, what What are they doing? Like, like what's going on there? Like, it suddenly was this fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because that, I've, heard, I've certainly heard that story a number of times and a number of people have said, and you were the guy who, um, you know, certainly this drink at Penn University that, that did this, this, and this. And, um, and I have a really bad memory, <laughs> for, and especially for things like that. And um, and and I kind of have to apologise and say, well, you know, that's like I'm really glad that, that you know you enjoyed it and, and whatever. And, you know, we serve a lot of people, and uh, 
you know, I struggle through them for everyone. Um, just pretend. Just pretend. That gets me into far worse trouble than, uh, than going <laughs> along with it. But, um, but the Penn University thing, I think, um, you know, the, the most monumental thing about that was that it was fully committed. That, um, you know, so often now I see, uh, not even now, but you know, since, since Penn U, like, people wanting to push coughing a certain direction, but not having the balls to do it properly. You know, and they say, well, we, you know, like we don't want people to drink milk with uh, a certain drink, you know, but you can if you really want to, and then you create this really awful, ambiguous gray area between what we want you to do and what you're allowed to do. And, and that, it's cringeworthy to see those conversations happen from, you know, when you're sitting on the customer side and you hear the staff trying to toe the line that they don't quite understand from the owners or the managers and the customer who doesn't understand at all why the risk is being such a dick um, and it does this unbelievably quick and successful job of, of making... <laughs> the industry looked ridiculous. Um, yeah, because, like, it's... He probably stole it from somebody else, but James Hoffman always says that, like, you you know by the time you sit down at the restaurant whether you can ask for ketchup or not. I've, I, uh, so I heard that from Stephen Morrissey, so, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. I would say. So, the, but Penny University was like that. Like, so you weren't allowed to have sugar, but like by the time you sat in that seat, it wasn't a fucking surprise. No, actually, no, it wasn't even like you weren't allowed to have well. sugar. It's like, way. we don't have sugar. Like, I, I understand yeah. that you want milk, but we actually don't have any. And I worked in a uh, coffee bar for, for one day as a kind of like a, a trading of a favour. And, um, and this was not that long after Penn University. And, and you know, Penn University, Penny U was all about like cutting down the, this perceived idea of choice down to this incredibly curated selection of, of like what we think is good, and, you know. And I worked in some place that was like it, the, the, the selection available was so broad it was mind blowing. And somebody ordered like a Sprite or Seven Up or something like this, and I mean, it wasn't on the menu. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't an option and one of the staff members and there were only two people one of the staff members got money out of the till and went to like a 7-Eleven and bought a Sprite to serve to the customer and I'm like and at the time I was just like it's either like the best customer service ever or the worst customer service and I still think it's the worst because it's just not it's but it's weird, it's because I can understand entirely why they'd want to do that. Because I think if you work in this industry, there is, there's a core part of you, whether you realise it or not, that wants to make people happy. You're like, that's there, that's why you're yeah. doing this, you know? Otherwise, you'd, you'd lock yourself away somewhere. Like, you're exposing yourself to strangers and you're trying to, like, make their day incrementally better via coffee or buns or steak mm. or whatever the hell it is. So when someone wants something, you're like your your first gut is to go, I'll go run and get it. But like it's it's like again, it's like with kids, it just it doesn't work. I don't think it does work that way, personally, um, because I don't think you can. 
I don't think it's sustainable to try and please every single person by doing anything they want. It's not um, not, it's not enjoyable for anyone who works in that company. Uh, and before you know it, you have like like every business is their sector's version of Amazon, which you know Amazon serves a purpose, but but you know I I don't want my butcher to be like Amazon. You know, or my butcher to specialise in what's really good that day and, and make me recommendations. And if they don't have what I want, I want them to push me towards something else because if it's good, I'm going to enjoy it. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I, I found that to be really surprising. Um, so where next? Uh, so we closed Penny Uni after like maybe three months or four months, something like that. Um, yeah. I think we had the option to extend it, but um, I pretty much had to be there six, if not seven days a week. Um, and, you know, it was interesting, but, but it was exhausting. Uh, as you're well aware, I've never competed in barista competition, but um, people have told me that it's like doing a nine-hour uh, competition presentation. Um, <laughs> and people who won the world championship as well, so you know, they they should know. <laughs> and, uh, they know, and um, so so we closed it, and I, I spent the next I don't know how long six months or nine months or something at, at Square Mile. Uh, and I think back now, like, I can't, I'm not really sure what I was doing, but um, not like I didn't know what I was doing. At, at Venice or anything like that, but like I can't quite remember what I was working on. Uh, it was like some training and um, companies like that that are in a, a lot of growth, especially that like it's, I hate the word startup, but like that, they're still in that startup stage. There's just work to be done, and you need competent people around. And sometimes there is no job. No, there wasn't. I mean, there was a title of project manager, but it was like everything's a project, and there's only one person working on it. So that that person is invariably the manager. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but it was like a, you know, it was definitely a very um, yeah, it was a time of, of a lot of growth. Uh, I think at the same time, John and Jess. Both, st both started at uh, Square Mile and mm -hmm. there were a couple of other people who came on as well. And so it kind of went from like two people to eight people, seven people pretty quickly. Um, and I think everyone was kind of trying to find where they fitted in and um, what their role was and what they were responsible for and how that was going to work. And, um, Jess was really involved in the roasting side. That was kind of what she'd been brought in for. And, uh, John was doing a lot of, uh, he was doing deliveries to start with and then moved much more into the technical side of things. Uh, engineering, I think it was called. Um, and those guys had like really kind of clear roles of, of what they're doing and I didn't anywhere near as much. Um, mm -hmm. And I was interested in a million different things and um, I did, yeah, did, just didn't have too much to kind of sink my teeth into. Um, and we were incredibly cramped in there. I mean, I don't know if you ever visited, but it was in the railway arch. 
Mm, I remember. Um, so it was kind of like a, they were holding a lot of coffee, a lot of roasted coffee, because so much was going out every week, and that had that hold a lot of green coffee as well. And then there was an entire Halloway range and training space and cupping space and the roaster and everyone's desks and. It was really, really tight, and, and James and Annette had been talking about a new roaster for a long time, and they they had struggled to find a place, and they'd had uh, some locations fall through, and so I basically said to them that I, you know, I would love the opportunity to to find a new space and design a new space, and this was kind of one afternoon. They said, okay, well, you know, it's like really hard at the moment, but uh, have a look and see what you come up with, and. I think it was an hour and a half later, I was walking home and I saw a space and it looked great. And that's where that's where Square Mile is now. And um, I think they had an offer in uh, pretty promptly after and and they got the space. It was like this totally decrepit, terrifying distribution warehouse. Uh, with I remember there was a room with it. Yeah, we, yeah, we didn't know it was a dummy at the time. It was just a dark room that a body fell out of when we opened the door. So yeah, um, so I remember them leading me down a corridor, and everybody was like, yeah. "What's what's going on?" And then they like open the door, Colin, and I opened the door. And yeah, it was like a tackling dummy, like a rugby tackling dummy. Um, yes, terrifying. Um, there was a coffin in one of the rooms. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> So, so yeah, so then I said about uh, kind of project managing the design and build of, of that space and, and doing a lot of the deconstruction work as well, um, which was, you know, really interesting uh, uh, to a point and then, um, and then to a point it wasn't and, and I just really wasn't enjoying going to work every day and, um, uh, you know, it was it, it, like like probably every other career move. Uh, it was just it was just time. It just wasn't it wasn't the right time for me to be there. And, um, what I wanted out of a, a role wasn't what Square Mile was able to offer, and and it just wasn't a good fit at the time. Um, mm. So the opportunity to work with uh, Saint Ali at the time uh, opening in. East London uh, popped up and um, it seemed like it would be a good opportunity to be across roasting and retail and a bunch of the things that I've been working on partially throughout my career to that point. Um, and so that was the next move for me, uh, which must have been, I think, April of 2011. Uh, oh. Yeah, so originally I was only I was employed just to to take care of the coffee side of things, to obviously the sourcing and the roasting, um, and then that kind of bled into how the coffee was going to be served, uh, and then that bled into everything else. Literally everything else. Um, designing a new coffee shop and building the website and putting the online store. And, Redoing all the packaging, and then more shops. Then more shops after that, um, 
uh, and then even you know the restaurant side of things in Clerkenwell. Uh, I got involved in designing menus with the chefs and actually like uh, literally designing the printed menus and the typesetting of the menus. And uh, I think for the first maybe three months that we operated the restaurant as well, I, I worked every dinner service on the floor. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I was I was involved in pretty much every aspect of the business um, for a number of years. Um, um, I'm just to move on to what you do now. So, coffee sourcing. Coffee sourcing. Hell, you're not long into it now, are you? No. So it's uh, it's funny, right? It, it was. Uh, Kind of never meant to be a company, and um, then it then it became one sort of inadvertently. Um, uh, I, so I, I, I was at workshop for um, uh, about four years, and you know, workshop was getting much bigger. Uh, I think they're up to maybe like eighty five employees now, on five locations, and um, wow. They're definitely, you know, they're, they're going through a lot of growth and doing some really interesting things. But but my role is becoming much more about um, just like general management, and it could have been a coffee company, or we could have been like uh, light bulb distribution, or we could have been, um, you know, cardboard box manufacturers. Uh, my role was just managing departments and budgets and and. And that was fun, and, and there are aspects of that that was really enjoyable, and I was certainly learning a lot about um, the finance side of the business and the, and the business side of the business. But um, mm-hmm. I sort of felt like I was just like still a little bit too young to to pursue that completely, and I really wanted to focus on coffee. And I'd been doing a lot of the sourcing, a lot of the buying for workshop, a lot of the travel, uh, pretty much all of the travel apart from. I think one trip uh, and spending a lot of time in Africa, especially, and really enjoying that and really enjoying trying to get my head around this unbelievably complicated and long and socially diverse and economically uh, fractured supply chain that we have from a coffee farm to a um, to, you know, to, to a cup of coffee in an air-conditioned bar in Fitzrovia. And I was really enjoying that. So, so I actually sat down with the owner of Workshop one day. And I'm sure he, in fact, I know that he, he thought I was uh, sitting him down to ask for a pay rise because he, he started by saying, look, I think I know where this is going and we just can't pay anymore at the moment. And I have to say, well, actually, what I would like is to take a pay decrease, and I'd like to hand off, you know, eighty percent of my role to other people, and I just want to focus on coffee buying, and I want to start my own company to do that, and look after this for workshop, uh, so that all I have to worry about is is finding great coffee for the company, and everything else that it takes to run workshop can go to other people. So it was actually about an eight-month process to transition out um, to just doing the coffee buying, and um, and uh, you know I thought I'll have a website that kind of like explains a little bit 
about what I do because uh, I figured when people ask, and most people often being my parents or um, relatives or whatever, it would be nice to have just a little site where I can say, well, yeah, this is kind of what I do, and I have some more information here. And I was at an event in Sweden. It was like three o'clock in the morning, and I was—I I really wanted a good domain name for it, and I couldn't couldn't really come up with anything. And then I like sat up at three in the morning. I was like, coffeesourcing.com. I was like, there's no way that, that domain name will be available. Uh, so I checked it, and it was available. And Twitter, <laughs> the Twitter username was available, and the Instagram account was available. So like. Fuck this, I re registered them all, and I put it at the top, and the next morning, in like maybe six hours, I built a Square, Squarespace website and had it online. Um, and then people started making inquiries, and people started asking me about their sourcing programs and what I could do for them and how I could help. And so I fleshed out the website even more, and, and the next thing I knew, people were saying, people were introducing me in like articles that I've written things as the founder of coffee sourcing and um, and uh, so I just went with it and thought well you know we'll see where this goes and we'll see who's interested and who wants to do interesting things with coffee and on the, on the green side on the buying side so because um, there is there's a large part proportion like I know because I'm one of them who uh, of people out there who run roasteries that want to have great green coffee and want to have like to roast great coffee um, but his focus isn't on yeah. traveling to origin yeah and I, it's a weird thing because I think in the industry there's, a, there's definitely a tendency for people to think they need to tick all the boxes I see a lot of like startup roasteries who I know like it must be difficult cash flow wise and they're traveling through Africa and I'm like why are you doing that you know it's you should go get some customers first and then when you have time and money and, you know, it allows you to go maybe source it then, but you're filling that gap for people. And I suppose at this stage, you don't want to do the, the roasting and the customer facing sort of stuff. You just want to focus on this. Yeah. Well, I, what, what I think has been really interesting, it's been maybe six months since, uh, I put the website up and, and now is that you're right. There's a lot of people who, um, who don't want to go and do the travel. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are doing the travel. And yet invariably, I think the vast majority of those people are all buying spot coffee from importers at the end of the day. And there's definitely nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think that's a big reason why you look around the coffee scene in Europe and and there's so much shared coffee and it's because people have a bit of a herd mentality towards the names of particular cooperatives or particular uh, washing stations they want to get one and it's an awkward one when people have different pricing strategies it is it definitely is and i think it's very telling um but uh you know certainly what i wanted to do um like i have no no interest in being an importer um and not because it's bad business, I think it's excellent business, but it's but it's business business and it's a lot of time working on financing and hedging currencies and talking to your bank and moving stock and having salespeople and all those things are great, but uh, they're not what I want to do with my time. Um, and so the whole idea behind uh, 
what I was proposing with coffee sourcing was that it was about enabling uh, smaller brands and smaller coffee roasteries to be able to get access to incredibly particular and specific lots of coffee uh, that we would move with bigger importers to get costs down. But it requires a huge amount of commitment and planning on the on the customer side, on the client side. And I think that's been the biggest challenge uh, for everyone that I've talked to, is for them to be able to say, three months from now we'll be roasting X amount of coffee per week, we'll need X amount of green coffee mm. a month, we want it to be of this standard, of this particular profile, and 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 you can go yeah. out and find it for us. Um, I, I, I have a spreadsheet of calls. You're going to like this. It's a play on words. Uh, the Greencast. <laughs> and the Greencast does this or tries to do this. And this is the thing is because you can't, you can't predict which of your coffees your customers are going to like most, which they're going to buy most, which like, and you have to take into account how much busier you're going to be or maybe how, like if you lose a big customer, if you're going to be less busy or and it's, it's almost impossible. Like it's, it's getting yeah. easier, but like, I mean, and you, you can't control that no. for them either. Like that's, no. you're relying on them to Of course. And that's, you know, that's why coffee importers are so incredibly valuable. And there's been this big, uh, not even a big movement necessarily, but a noisy movement around the idea of direct trade and cutting out the middlemen and all this kind of thing. And, and the reality is without the middlemen, nearly every roaster would be fucked. Yeah, I see it in food as well. Like we 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 deal with lots of like independent uh, producers, and you order stuff. It needs to be there for Monday morning, and then Wednesday evening, someone strolls through the door with a box saying, "Oh, you ordered this." And I say, "I ordered this on Monday," and it's just sense. And but what I'm seeing in Ireland, anyway, is that these small producers are now re-engaging with middlemen, saying, "Well, actually, you know, you could do all the delivery and collect the money for me," and they'd be like, "Yeah, we can do that," and it's it's kind of going. Which is great to, because the chances are. The person, the person who you want producing your cheese is not the same person that you want handling the like the logistics of delivering that cheese. Yeah, Absolutely, it's, it's two different like personality types. Um, do you think? Do you think people feel like a guilt if 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 they're if they have to call so if they're calling somebody and saying, "Okay, I want you to source all the coffee for us." And is there like is there a, a, an industry like? pressure to go and do all yeah I think I think in coffee certainly it's safest to be doing what the noisy few seem to be doing um, which mm. you know I understand um, but I think as well it's like more important that that importers absorb all the risk right you can be in London and you can say Give me samples of X, Y, and Z. You know that they've shipped. You know they've landed. You know the quality is good enough. You know what the price is going to be. There's no surprises, and they're going to be delivered the next day. And 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 that's fine. Like if you if you want to supply your business with predictable and reliable coffee, it's it's great. And um, and you know uh, I think for the for so many small companies and even young companies, like that 
is a really sensible way to operate. And if there's one thing I've never been, it's particularly sensible. And, uh, you know, I would much rather, um, well, no, it's not that I would much rather, it's just I find it much more exciting to be, to be looking for something different and to be taking chances and to be looking for something that is more, um, that, that carries a much higher risk and, and maybe it'll take three years for it to realise its full potential, but to be developing relationships that are going to fulfil what the next stage of coffee is. Because I think so much of what um, smaller and newer roasters um, and less confident roasters are gravitating towards is a certain set of names that they can put onto their backs that will be recognisable and that, that, that they're playing to this herd mentality of saying, well, my coffee can't be bad because Tim Wendelboe buys it and Workshop Coffee buy it or Square Mile buy it. Um, and but it's the, same, it's the same logic that got us to the point where people would say, well, it can't be bad because it's being brewed on a linear or SMSO or, or because I use the scale, it can't be bad. And it's, there's, there's a lot of that. So it's a celebration of it. So to, to complicate all this, then you're, you're jumping ship. <laughs> you're, you're going south. I'm going, you know, almost as far south as you can before you start coming back again. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually talking to you. I don't know if you can hear the echo properly, but for, I'm talking to you from a, a house that is now completely devoid of any furniture or... But you sent me the picture. <laughs> the, the laptop I'm talking to you on is sitting on that box. Um, it's, <laughs> we have a, one MacBook Pro. One charger, and I'm uh, sitting on a sitting on a jacket. So, I really did catch you at the last minute. Honestly, the cleaners come tomorrow morning, and uh, then we're done. And uh, my my wife and my daughter and I uh, on Sunday, we yeah we fly to Melbourne. Uh, yeah, after about ten years in London, uh, and we start all over again. Um, <laughs> Which is really exciting. I mean, it's, it's, we've, we've both had a really good time in London and uh, my wife's from Melbourne also. Um, but we've, yeah. When, when, when the kids arrive, it, it's, it, you need that kind of support group. I think it's like completely... Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, uh, we both got to a point where we felt like we were in London for reasons that made our lives better. Um, but we were depriving, you know, a two-year-old of, of a lot of the things that were very important in our childhoods, and that that was big families and yeah. those families being around all the time. So, as, you know, independent of work, independent of careers and all that kind of thing, we, we just decided that we we're going to go back and 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 yeah, that, that happens in like three days' time. So, and more importantly, you were depriving Tim. Varney. That's it. Uh, that's it. I mean. He has been he has been sad by his own admission, um, hollow feeling. I think he said. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, Tim Tim is a really good friend of mine who um, I've been very lucky to work with uh, on the World Aeropress Championships for the last couple of years, um, and we've been talking for years about about uh, 
you know, one day doing something more together. Uh, and so we're going to get that going. Actually, I think we arrive on the 15th and, and we start on the uh, 15th of December and we, we start on the 18th of December um, with a new company and with some new ideas and we have some clients on board and, uh, and yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to take the two days off, the 16th and the 17th, but, but the 18th is, is, a, is a 9 a.m. start. So, obviously you're still on the, the, the formative ideas of this, so, and um, I think we should uh, probably wrap this yeah. up soon enough, but like the, the uh, what will you guys be doing, like without letting the title? I think, well, so, you know, I've been really involved on the kind of the organisational side of, of helping smaller companies get, get from one point to the next point for, for the last few years, and Tim's been really involved on the roasting side and the QC side and obviously I've done a lot of buying as well uh, as Tim has too and I think neither of us were really interested in going into the, the Melbourne turf war of, um, of roasting coffee uh, too yeah. much it, it, I mean it's scary and it's it's really competitive competitive and um, I think it's uh, it's an incredibly rewarding place to, to be if, if you're up for that and if that's the right fit for you, but I think both of us feel that that's not the right fit for us. And we also have this AeroPress competition to run, which which takes a good couple of days a week now. And so, uh, so we've both been playing around with the idea of some kind of roasting collective, um, a little bit similar to what uh, Steve Mearsh has been doing in New York with the Pulley Collective. Yeah, and. We've talked, been talking about it for kind of the last year and, and really started to hone that idea down. And um, We went to New York a few weeks ago and met up with Steve and chatted through some ideas with him too, uh, which was great. Um, and yeah. so, you know, we're really interested in, in building out um, a platform that, that can help, whether it's a 20 kilo a week guy or a 300 kilo a week guy, um, get from not roasting to roasting. Because that's a half a million dollar transition uh, in the traditional kind of way, and, and it shouldn't be like that. Uh, uh, your ability to access um, cheap capital should not be the defining factor in who gets to roast and who doesn't, because you know we will yeah. invariably end up with a very homogenous and boring um, coffee industry globally. If if the only people who get to decide how roast coffee takes are the people who tastes uh, are the people who, who who are willing to put their hands on that amount of money. Um, you know, I think there's so many ideas that, that, that can be explored and developed and maybe 80% will fall by the wayside, 20% will get adopted, but, but we're not going to explore those ideas at all if it's only... Yeah. It's an interesting space because you're, like, you're enabling people to just take one more step in, into the understanding of what their business That's it, and, and at a very low commitment level as well, because maybe they don't want to have to develop a five-year plan around roasted coffee. Maybe they just want to see what happens when they put this coffee in this machine for this amount of time and, and see where that takes them. Um, yeah. Or even do it once and realise... Absolutely. Which, happens. which is my roasting career summed up, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Um, I think uh, at future stage, I would actually, I, I, we've kind of skirted around AeroPress championships, and I think that's for a reason. At a future stage, I'd like to get either Tim Varney or you or both of you on to talk about that, because I think that's a beast of itself. That, that, is a, that has become a beast unto itself. Absolutely. I think we just yeah. signed our, our 50th uh, nation for, for the 2016 season. So it's, it's going to be a big one. Wow. But, um, yeah, so I think we'll definitely come back and do that. Um, but other than that, I think that's, it's a lovely uh, place to leave off. Um, I really am gutted that you're leaving because like, I think um, it's probably no news to most people that listen to this or follow us both on Twitter that we, we don't always get on. But I think uh, I've always had a lot of respect for you, and I hope that's um, absolutely. And I, I think it's um, I've always like we've, I, I, we've not spent a huge amount of time together, but I've always enjoyed that time, and it's always made me think. So I'm gonna miss you a lot. So I'm I'm glad I caught you here. And there's there's a certain poignancy to you sitting there, <laughs> with your box <laughs> in front of you, in an empty room. Uh, recording this this podcast so I like to think that maybe in 10 or 20 years time you'll kind of dust off the old website and press play and, and uh, listen to your memories unfold I, I certainly will and uh, it actually occurred to me as I, as we were talking and I was uh, thinking like maybe one day our kids will listen to this uh, and think, think what was with all the swearing like why did they swear so much we are just talking about coffee <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there definitely has to be a PG version for the kids. But no, I agree, Colin, and it's uh, it's 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 been um, a real privilege to be able to um, come on, talk to you, and uh, yeah, we definitely haven't agreed, but uh, on, on everything in the past. But um, it's, it's I've always been very interested to hear your opinions on things because I think you certainly think things through a lot more than than a lot of people and. There's, a, there's only one level down from uh, from me not agreeing with someone, and that's with me not engaging with someone at all. And I certainly <laughs> certainly have not spared you that uh, whatsoever. So yeah, but this can continue from abroad. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. this isn't the end. Um, well, anyway, listen. On on <clears throat> as the spokesperson of Europe, um, best of luck in the future, and uh, and with the plans with with Tim. And uh, yeah, I wish you many years of success. And to you, all the best. Brilliant. Talk soon, mate. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli.